I got brutalized with, you know, towel whipping and and purple nurples and all kinds of uh, bullying, Wait, you would call it. What is right? a purple nurple? Like a titty a, twister? Titty twister, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. This week, we're getting personal with Mark. We've received so many requests to learn more about his journey as an entrepreneur. So today, we're going to sit down, talk about the often rocky road to success, the wins, the failures, all the fun things he's faced along the way. Um, A quick reminder, any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hey. What's up? How's it going? Great. It's going great, actually. I love it. This is so fun getting to relive like all the fun stories that I've heard from you along the way. So I'm pumped because we get to talk about entrepreneurship today uh, with, you know, the one and only who's been through quite a bit. So let's kick it off here. Did you always know you wanted to run your own business? Absolutely. From, I don't know, the age of five or six, probably. But, and, and I say that because my dad was a painter, an artist, and he worked out of the house. And so we sold the fruits of his labor. Um, and that's what actually paid for the household. Uh, he, you know, he painted paintings and grew an art career, but he also, cause art wasn't a big uh, collectible sort of thing in the fifties when I was growing up first and then in the sixties. So he and my mother made neckties and jewelry and tchotchkes, and they sold them in a little gift shop in the back of our house in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Uh, so I saw, the transactions. I saw what was happening there. And I'm like, okay, this looks, this looks pretty cool. This is how business works. This is how commerce works. You do something, you get paid for it. Um, and it started a, a spark in my head. And I, I remember when I was uh, nine, 10 years old, uh, I was making little wooden toys and selling them to the my, my parents' friends who had children. Uh, when I was 12, 13, my sister and I would make Christmas wreaths at Christmas time and go door to door and sell those. Um, summers, when I was 12 years old, I had my own business. I had a, land, a landscaping business. I mowed lawns, but I mowed lawns 40, <laughs> 40 hours a week. Yeah. Um, and I was making $2.50 an hour, which was like really good money in the you know early 60s. Yeah. Uh, I was, I, I, I remember one day I stayed home from school on a snow day in Maine and made 80 bucks shoveling driveways and, uh, and walkways. I, th- I thought I was rich. Yeah. So I, I really got a, a real strong connection between having an idea, being good at something, selling that idea or that service to somebody else, uh, and, and expanding on it from there. Um, when I, when I went to um, school, private school later on, I put myself through school. So I put myself through the last year uh, of a boarding school and then all four years of college by painting houses. And I remember one year I made more money in the summer than my dad made that whole year uh, painting houses. Uh, I was, you know, I was, I was just, uh, I was fit. I was an athlete. So I liked what I was doing. It was physical activity. It was physical work. I felt... Painting houses was like training. You know, I was monkeying up and down a ladder all day in the sun in the summer. Uh, then, of course, I'd go home and run 15 miles as part of my training. Um, you know, from there, I, I I parlayed that into a larger company where I was hiring other painters to work for me and doing, you know, running a couple of vans and a couple of crews and, 
And I was mostly then going out and doing the bidding on jobs. Um, I, I took on a partner at that point. Uh, we decided we wanted to expand into other areas. So we started a frozen yogurt shop in Palo Alto, uh, 1981, when frozen yogurt was just a, you know, just beginning. Uh, we had a we had a frozen yogurt shop called Cool Licks, Cool Licks Soft <laughs> Frozen Yogurt on Emerson Street, right off of University in Palo Alto. And we crushed. It was it was amazing how well we did. We actually we couldn't find a space. We looked for you know six months, eight months to find a space. We couldn't find a space. <clears throat> so we bought a barber shop and took over the lease. And that's how we that's how we wound up with this little 550 square foot space that we then, because we were my partner and I were also contractors, we built the space out ourselves. We it was amazing how we used you know, a stone and chrome and glass and marble and all sorts of cool stuff and built a really cool emporium. I love um, it. But then, then came uh, big business lesson number one, pretty much, which was uh, we, we got uh, greedy. We decided to expand. There was a new restaurant concept going in in San Diego called Soup Plantation. And oh, it yeah. was- I remember when, that. Yeah. When the yeah. healthy, when, you know, this whole health craze was starting to really take off. And they had uh, muffins and frozen yogurt and a big salad bar. So we we took a space about a mile and a half down the road from Apple Computer um, on Saratoga Sunnyvale Road. We built out this this space. Um, we put in a sixty foot uh, salad bar that was uh, refrigerated from underneath, so the bowls would fit into the little cutouts. And we it was it was spectacular. And we had eight flavors of frozen yogurt. We had healthy mu- uh, muffins. We we poached one of the managers from Mrs. Fields Cookies, and she, so she, we brought her over. We had everything like completely dialed in. Two problems: number one, this was in uh, 1983. We borrowed money at 17 and a half percent, and that was a good rate in those days. What and could you borrow two, money for today to give readers some perspective here? Three percent, three and a half. If, I mean, I I can borrow money for less than that because you know I have I have if you have money. It's easy to borrow money, but um, in it, now, if you really want to start a you know a business and you had good collateral, you know three and a half four percent would be you know, easy to to get a rate like that. Um, so with that amount of payments on the loan, and and this was the killer, um, the landlord decided to put a women's uh, aerobics gym right next door to us. Now you would think that'd be a great thing, but this was in a strip center, and they would hold aerobics classes every. You know, from eleven o'clock to two o'clock, when women were on their break, and or when people were, you know, w- women had dropped the kids off from sc- to school or whatever, and the parking lot filled up, and nobody could park to come to our restaurant, and it was a strip center right off a busy road in Sarah in in San Jose, so we, you know, we failed. It was uh, it was horrible. So we actually that actually eventually it was going to go bankrupt, but I just I I let my partner take everything over he wanted to. And I moved on to the next phase of my life. Got it. Okay. We have to back up here for a second. So you grow up, your dad is an artist. Yep. Like, was this a stressful artist type of a position or, I mean, cause he became more recognized for his work later in life. Right. From what I understand. Yes. But he was fairly successful early on. He was the youngest inductee into the American Watercolor Society. So when he was very young, this uh, American Watercolor Society was a big, still is a a big deal for painters. 
Yeah. Um, he had galleries in Boston and one in New York. Okay. Um, so it wasn't, you know, he wasn't there like were, a starving artist. No, he wasn't really a starving artist. Well, shouldn't say that. <laughs> well, we never starve, but, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, he, he took on odd jobs too. He would, uh, he played, uh, he was also a great musician. So he played jazz piano. So in the summertime, when, when the town that I grew up in became more of a resort for the few months of summer, he played uh, piano in a nightclub and made, made money doing that. Um, he worked in a shipyard once in a while, you know, on occasion. Um, he, he, t- he gave, he didn't give art lessons. He was the director of the Portland museum of art, which later became cool. a big art school. So he, you know, he had other things streams that he was doing. Got it. He had other streams of income as the kids say today, yeah. right? <laughs> other He's funnels. very diversified. Yeah, okay. And yeah. then like, so private school, like, did you want to, did you find this private school? Did you go there to run or like, how'd you get into what yeah. prompted so, the interest so in the private school? I, I grew up, uh, again, this, this small town in, in Maine, Booth Bay Harbor, it's a, it's a lovely, uh, you know, idyllic fishing village. And it really yeah. is a fishing village. Um, when I was growing up there, the population was 2,800. And I looked recently on Google and now the population is 2,700. Stop it. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. uh, and so, you know, there were 35, 38 kids in my, in my class. And when I say kids in my class, same class all the way from kindergarten through senior year in high school. Cool. And what happens in, uh, in these, you know, small town dynamics where there's not a lot of money, um, as we like to say, we were poor, but we didn't know it. Uh, you know, there was, there's a sort of alpha male hierarchy that develops. I was a quite a smart kid. And I was, uh, when I got into uh, high school from, from grade school, I started uh, in ninth grade, I got placed out of some classes into some higher math classes. And it happened that I, that I wound up um, on a, um, uh, on, in an all senior PE class. And so I got, I got brutalized with, you know, towel whipping and, and purple nurples and all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, 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 abuse, bullying, Wait, you would call it. What is right? a purple nurple? Like a titty twister? Titty twister. Yeah. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so I, right. I, uh, anyway, so the, what happened was I, um, you know, I'd been, uh, decided early on that I wasn't, I didn't like wasting time. I, yeah. I had stuff to do. So I uh, lived about a mile and a half from school. So all through my years going to school, I never took the bus. I literally just, I, I walked to, to and from school, except I didn't walk. I jogged and I got, so I, I got three miles of running in every day. Um, you know, most school days. So when uh, that first a year of high school rolled around and spring track came, became available, I was clearly in shape. I was, well, I was way too small and scrawny for football or baseball or basketball. Um, I, you know, I have a small frame to begin with and I was, and I was, I hadn't grown into that yet. So I, uh, so I went out for track team and lo and behold, I wound up uh, winning the mile and the two mile at pretty much every meet and sometimes winning the pole vault um, because I had taken a year of gymnastics and I learned how to you know, do flips and somersaults and things like that. So when the pole vault came around, I sort of adapted to that pretty easily. Now I didn't, I didn't go very high, but I, I went high enough to take okay. first place or second place in some of these meets. So by the end of the year, I'd sort of established, you know, some credibility for myself. Got it. But you know, after 
a couple of years of that, I was just like, you know, this isn't working for me. And I was aware of, uh, in New England, you are very, you are made very aware of the opportunity afforded by certain private schools. Um, New England is where, you know, all yeah. of these boarding schools, um, you know, Exeter, Andover, yeah. Groton, Choate, um, you know, Deerfield, they're, they're all, Mount Hermon, they're all over the place. And so I applied to a couple of them and, uh, and I got in. And so I, I did not hesitate. Uh, I didn't let the screen door hit me in the ass on the way out, as I said. And I got out of, I got out of Booth Bay Harbor and went to Exeter first. And then from there, um, that, that opened some doors to go to college. So I wound up going to Williams College in Western Massachusetts. And so throughout that part of my development, I was, I was becoming a better and better athlete. I mean, I was, I was an okay student. Uh, mind you, I went from being one of the top students in a small uh, town to being, you know, an okay student in a, in a very well-respected high level educational facility. Um, but it was great. It was, you know, it was an amazing experience and great learning. And I had a, had a blast there and met some wonderful people and, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't trade it, but that's really when I left home, I left home at 15 and almost other than a few vacations here and there never went back. Yeah. Did your parent, like, were your siblings as ambitious at such a young age? No. And I mean, you know, I had, um, so, so because, because my, my father was such a creative type and he sort of fancied himself almost like Van Gogh, um, to the extent that when he was in his sixties, he lost half of his ear to skin cancer. Um, Talk about and, manifest destiny right there, huh? Right. Exactly. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, he, he was one of these, um, you know, he wasn't a starving artist, but he was a tortured artist and he was always right. trying to, he painted obsessively. So, um, you know, people would say, you, you know, you're, you're really passionate about your painting, aren't you? And he goes, no, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. He painted every day from the age of 16 until he died at 89. So he was always chasing the perfect painting, which, which, you know, in his mind never materialized. Well, so in the, uh, sixties, late sixties, early seventies, he was starting to get, drive himself crazy with his creativity. And so he and my mother had marital, marital problems and they split up. So I was, I was 15 when I, when that happened, it was the first year at Exeter. Oh, so you left home and then they divorced. Right. When that happened, like, like I left home and then a few months later I got, you know, I got the news. And where Uh, are you in the rank of the siblings? I can't remember. So I'm the oldest. So, you know, I have a a sister who's two years younger. I have a brother who's uh, five years younger and another brother who's six years younger. So um, they were really in a, in a formative uh, part of their lives. Yeah. And, you know, they, they're, they're all creative in their own right. Uh, my sister is a singer songwriter. She doesn't do so much anymore. Um, but, um, she's a, sort of a, she's well-respected in the spiritual new age world. And she's got a couple of albums and, and she's very talented. Uh, but she never, she didn't make a living, you know, a, a complete living at it. Um, you know, one of my other brothers does sort of small, small investment strategies with uh, real estate. And the other one, um, my, my, my other brother is, is a great sculptor, amazing sculptor who's never shown his work or sold his work. It's really quite crazy because he's, he is, and I'm pretty, uh, I'm not, I'm not that generous with my, with my effusiveness over talent and he's really talented. So, Yeah. Yeah. So what do you um, think, like, where do you think, like, what's up with this ambition of yours then? Like, where do you think that came from? 
yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a puzzle, and I don't you know I sometimes I look at you know astrology and like ah that's stuff. Well, maybe there's something to that, yeah. and sometimes I look at birth order. You know, there, there's there is some um, you know some sort of commonalities between firstborns versus secondborns versus yeah. thirds, and um, you know, but I think um, like you know you ask you know, where some of this came from, I think some of it just goes back to early, early imprinting. And I remember uh, when I was in, I was seven or eight years old. And my dad, who was also a a very good golfer, like a scratch golfer, uh, he would take me once in a while to to caddy for him. Now, you know, seven years old, I couldn't lug the clubs, but I could, you know, go along. And I think he, you know, he enjoyed having me along. And, And once in a while, if a ball would go up, you go out of bounds or something. We would go looking for golf balls and we'd look for the ball for the lost ball, but always I'd find like five or six or 10 other lost balls. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I thought that that was like a treasure trove. That was like an Easter egg hunt. And so I kept, I kept hoping he'd, you know, hit a ball out of bounds so he could go, go up in the bushes and pull, pull the bushes aside and look underneath and see if we'd see a, you know, a shiny white magic, you know, golf ball there. I think that imprinted on me, um, you know, the the um, the feeling a very real, um, you know, endorphin rush every time like a sale is made. I mean, you know, in the early days of Primal Kitchen, every time we opened a new, yeah. you know, a new store uh, and had a new point of distribution, I felt like I'd found a golf ball. So um, so I think some of that's imprinting. I think some, I mean, a lot of it is just the t- like the timing. I was already well-developed when my parents got divorced. My, my siblings were not, and it, it really dramatically affected them. Yeah. Uh, they wound up um, sort of harboring a, you know, a, a, a dislike from my dad throughout their whole lives. Yeah. And um, you know, I made amends. There was a point which I didn't see him for 10 years from the age of like 17 to 27. He sort of didn't see your dad. You're saying. Correct. It's my dad. Um, you know, and I got over that and we made amends and we got, you know, we, we under, we understood each other. And I knew he was going through some, some stuff. He had, uh, you know, he had been one of the early um, experimenters with LSD with a do- under a doctor's supervision when it was allowed back in the Timothy Leary days. It's coming back, Mark. It's yeah, coming I, no, back. I know. I know. No, he, he was ahead of the curve. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. So, so yeah. So I think there, you know, I, I don't know that there's any other, uh, real reason that that I became an entrepreneur when others of my siblings didn't, other than you know the luck of the draw, birth birth order, um, timing in life, you know a lot of these things. And you know as as you and I have discussed many times, I mean Primal Kitchen was a perfect example of the confluence of these variables. Like we had three or four things that all came together. Um, there was a, the timing. There was me meeting you. There was the, um, the you know, the, the recognition that healthy fats are good for you. Like avocado oil was, was, was being now, you know, if we tried that five or 10 years earlier, might not have been as successful. So quite often these things, you know, it's like a perfect storm of all these variables. Yeah, I know. But I think it's so easy as like a successful person to just like discredit everything to timing. Like I really struggle with this because you know, like the how I built this podcast always ends with like I can't remember. Like, do you think it was how much was luck in imparted in, in your journey? And 
I don't know. Like, what do you think about that? Like, do you think it's just luck or what do you think? It no, is? no, no. But I mean, but I mean, I, I think luck is, um, is ephemeral. I think you make luck. I mean, it's it, luck is basically opportunity that has been identified and, and acted upon. That's yeah. what luck is. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like, um, you know, we, so I wouldn't say luck played any role in this, but timing is a good example of that. Like yeah. I've watched businesses that, may have um, been perfect now, but didn't succeed. I'll give you an example. Here's a great example. Yeah, tell me. Uh, TRX. So, you know, the black and white TRX bands that you see in the gyms? Yeah. The cables, right? This, 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 of course. The straps. Yeah. Okay. I invented that in 1988. Okay. So did... 50 other trainers in Los Angeles. So did a hundred other trainers in New York, but no one was able to make this stupid, not stupid, this simple concept into a worldwide phenomenon until the guys at TRX said, okay, here's how we're going to do it. So timing was part of it. Part of it was um, you know, clearly marketing and the ability to market to a different, a different group of people. Um, so, uh, it's, I think it's just, you know, exemplary of like, it didn't work in the eighties, but it worked in the early two thousands and it yeah. took off like gangbusters. No, for sure. Timing is everything. Yeah. So they say, yeah, I I'm with you on that. I think karma too. Like, I think we had a lot of like karmic luck, if you will, when we launched Primal Kitchen, like there were just people we were nice to that liked us that we, that kind of paid back for years after we launched. No, I mean, you know, uh, just, again, you talk about karmic luck. You know, I, I spent 10 years writing a blog and creating, you know, an audience and, and hopefully creating some, uh, some authenticity and, uh, you know, some trust with people. And then next thing, you know, you know, David Woods says, Hey, you know, I, I like what you've been doing. I'm a big fan. I like the concept. Um, I think whole foods, would love to have your products. Let's try it out. Well, you know, that, that, that doesn't happen. That's not even luck or timing. That's, that's this karma thing about just working hard and and setting, you know, that's creating your own luck. Well, you put a lot of value out into the universe, right? And then it paid back. That might be the biggest lesson here is, is put, you know, put out, put value out into the universe. And at some point, if you persevere, it'll, it'll pay off. You know, and I had I had a good business. I had this uh, supplement company that was I could have. You know, you still have it essentially. I mean, yeah, yeah, we're still yeah. selling supplements. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but that's that's all I had for you know twenty five years, and it and it you know afforded me a very nice living, and uh, people enjoyed the product and thought highly of it, and uh, you know it, that that was enough to keep me um, well fed and a roof over my family's head for the rest of my life, but. You know the the food thing was just more of a um, the uh, of my kind of recognizing that the universe was sending signals back to me that that it really was about food. I was writing about food. I was creating a new recipe every. I wasn't, but my team was creating a new recipe every Saturday. Um, it's you know I, uh, the second Primal Kitchen uh, book, the second Primal Blueprint book was. Primal Blueprint, healthy sauces, dressings, and toppings. Um, 
I forget if we talked about that. I thought that was going to sell like 50,000 copies. So I printed 50,000 copies. And I think we sold like 6,000 copies. I think we still have 50,000 copies that (laughs) came through to me last year on like the inventory report. Like, Morgan, what do you want to do with these? So if anyone's looking for a copy of Primal Kitchen, healthy sauces, dressings, and toppings, we'll send it to you. (laughs) No, but but here's here's a good example. So um, when you talk about business failures that turn into successes, I recognized really early that it was the sauces, the dressings, and the toppings that people wanted to make their primal paleo keto food choices taste better, to make that way of eating more sustainable and, and, and fun. I just didn't realize that people really didn't want to make their own. They would prefer the convenience of buying their own. Yeah. So, you know, it took, what's the number? It took eight years between the recognition of that or maybe five years between the recognition of that and then the, the doing the book and then realizing, no, I'll just make the sauces ourselves and we'll sell them. And, and that'll, that'll fulfill that need, answer that problem and be a good business. Yeah, for sure. So did you like win any, what are those like senior superlatives? Like what would your like high school and college friends think of you becoming this? Like, I mean, I've been at trade shows with you, Mark, like, you know, there's like fangirls and fanboys who are just like, you know, asking for your autograph. You've like changed their lives. You've inspired all these people to get healthy. Like what would your high school or college track friends, where did they think you would have ended up? Well, I I think they would have, they would have said that I was probably going to be successful. Um, I went from being on the JVB squad when I got to Exeter to being captain of the cross country team of the varsity team, my senior year. Um, you know, I had some, and then I did, um, between junior and senior year of Exeter, I did a program called outward bound and it changed my life. And it was really, um, it was a 28 day survival course. They still have outward bound. I'm still a huge fan of, of outward bound, it's, it's been, I think, watered down a little bit since then um, because it was harsh. I mean, people. You didn't, you have to spend like, or outward bound, you have to spend like some nights on your own in the. Yeah. Woods, yeah. It was, right? yeah. You know, There's you, like you, a component of it where you yeah, go by one yourself. Of the components is, they call it solo and you're out Got for uh, four days without, you know, without uh, food. Uh, you have a tarp and, uh, you know, a piece of string and a knife, you know, yep. maybe two matches or something like that. Um, you know, I enjoyed th- that part of the of the trip. Um, but it was, you know, I learned how to climb, uh, do mountain climbing because we, we did, uh, rock climbing in the, in the quarries. Uh, you learned, you know, ocean rescue, uh, outward bound. The one I did was off the coast of Maine and it was, uh, it was brutal. I mean, you spent most of the time on a 30 foot pulling boat, which was a, uh, had a, a mizzen rigged sailboat with a giant sail. But most of the time you had, you rode it with one man to one oar. Uh, and you know, there were 12 guys on that boat for long periods of time. In fact, one of the other parts of the, of that was your, what you was your, what they call the expedition. And you would plot a route and you'd go sail or row to some other Island remote from where you were, you know, and, and camp out overnight on the way. And it was a five day excursion kind of thing. No, it was, it was absolutely life changing. And I got some leadership skills there and, so I think my, uh, I think my, my, I know my, my high school running buddies would have, uh, would have thought that I would do pretty well. Yeah. Um, 
I share the camp thing. I think you know that, but I went to camp for eight weeks when I was eight years old. Like, you know, and I credit a lot of, I don't know. I think it's just very, it's very real character building. I did an adventures cross country in Costa Rica. I remember like we were following a guy with a machete through the rainforest. We camped on the beach, you know, did the whole thing. It's, it, those are like formative early experiences that I think are, can be pretty impactful. No. Put yourself out there. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think we see enough of it these days. I think, you know, I think a lot of kids are soft because the, the, that opportunity is not available anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even, yeah, you, you had to really like learn how to get along with people in a setting where your parents that was there. the number one. That was the number one skill set that you had yeah. to kind of develop. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you got it. You had to learn how to navigate different situations, different people, you know, the whole thing. So I, I, I'm totally with you on that. I think it's, it's imperative. So what did you want to be when you grew up? You knew you wanted to own your business. Was there like a. Yeah. So I actually, most of my life, I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up. Right. Um, I, uh, my, my whole uh, school programming was built around pre-med. So the courses I took in high school, the courses I took in college were pre-med, were all geared toward getting into medical school. Um, another sort of example of early imprinting, one of our family friends in Maine uh, who would come to Maine in the summertime from uh, Wilmington, uh, Delaware, was a renowned plastic surgeon. And he wasn't doing tits and asses. He was doing reconstructive surgery, okay. which is what plastic surgery was right. in those days. He was you know, changing lives by helping disfigured people and auto accidents and, and, and industrial accidents and things like that. And he was, he was brilliant and he was well-respected. And I, and I thought what he did was really cool. Um, and then another uh, family friend, a, a local doctor was a surgeon. He was my, one of my dad's best friends. And so when I was 14, I got I got to scrub up and go see a five-hour operation that he, that he conducted, you know. So I got early exposure to that. So I really wanted to be a doctor um, for uh, most of my years. I, you know, what happened was when I when I got through my latter years of college, and I saw all of the people that were getting into med med school, and they weren't they were really smart, but they weren't what I thought would be good doctors, right? They were just really smart nerdy people, no okay. offense to, to doctors, but, um, and then I was running well and I thought I was going to uh, maybe train for the Olympics. So I decided to take a few years off, uh, not, not, not apply to medical school for a few years, take a few years off before I applied to medical school, train for marathoning. And I was becoming one of the, a, a good, a good runner, a good marathoner. Uh, and, uh, and, and what happened, I was making so much money as a contractor and painting houses uh, probably more than I would have been making as a doctor in those days that I'm like, okay, what, you know, wh- what That's am I doing here? Yeah. And, uh, so I just sort of let it fall by the wayside and it, I, I wasn't that passionate about it. And I, I think I lost the, I, I, one of the reasons I lost my nerve, lost the drive was my, this guy I'd looked up to, um, lost his license. The, the plastic surgeon lost his license because he had been become an alcoholic and couldn't, he couldn't oh. function anymore. So that was like, okay, there's some stress there. There's some, some other oh, stuff behind the scenes. You picked up on that. And I picked yeah. up on that. Yeah. So, and I would tell you um, again, luck, uh, timing. Um, the best thing I ever, the best life decision I ever made was to not become a doctor. Um, and, you know, I feel like I've done much more as an educator, um, you know, as a public figure in this, in this field 
than I ever could have done as a physician anywhere. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably pretty valid. So let's talk about failure for a second. So we've talked about the frozen yogurt shop. What other failures have you had as an entrepreneur? Or um, just in life, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, so a lot of lot of little ones. Like I had uh, in the early days of running, I decided decided I wanted to have a uh, a running shoe repair kit, uh, and you know, I, I realized that runners would wear down the outside heel of their shoes uh, faster than any other part of this of the sole. So I built this uh, run, little running shoe repair kit with some um, nylon cleats that you would have fixed to the bottom and some sandpapers, you know, and I sold it for like six bucks or whatever. And I realized, <laughs> you know, I took out an ad in Runner's World magazine. And I realized that the metrics just weren't going to work there. Yeah. And that was one of the first lessons when that failed. I'm like, okay, lesson number one is if you think you have a good idea, make sure there's a business there, yeah. you know, make sure that there's a a $10 million business or a hundred or a billion, but not a $25,000 business because yeah. it's not worth the risk. Makes sense. Um, so that was one. Um, I, uh, I had a, um, uh, I wrote a book. One of my first, I've written many books. One of my first books was called the ultimate lean routine. And I, started to uh it was it was a it was one I, of my I best I like that title I didn't oh it was, this, was 19, this is a great title the this ultimate is, this is the ultimate lean routine yeah, 1989 okay. I wrote this. we should bring that back okay carry on yeah um and I self-published and I and I sold it as a kit with uh body fat calipers you know plastic body fat Oh my God, come on. Yeah, you kidding me? That's like what they did to uh, us in fifth grade. I remember my coming home from school, that thing they like test the fat on cows with those things. Those things are terrible. Okay, carry on. So I, uh, anyway, I I advertised in um, Triathlete Magazine, uh, Runner's World Magazine, some of the the fitness magazines. um, And it did pretty well. But then I was working for somebody else at the time. And they said, you you know, even though it wasn't, I'd already written the book and it was, I was fulfilling orders after work and, you know, whatever. Um, They said, I don't want you doing that and working for me at the same time. So I wound up literally selling the rights to this book to another trainer who published it under his name and it killed me, crushed me. Okay. So we can't bring it back. So we can't bring it back. Although I could probably reacquire the rights to it now. Um, you know, uh, I uh, other failures. I bought a I bought a house when I was twenty one. I bought a, a fixer upper uh, in North Adams, Massachusetts, and it was a beautiful not beautiful because it was a fixer upper, but it was a uh, nineteen eighteen vintage Victorian. It was three and a half stories tall. It was thirty eight hundred square feet. It had you know twelve foot ceilings on every floor a full attic. And, uh, and I, I bought it with borrowed money and I started to work on it and I ran out of money and I ran out of money in the middle of winter in Western Massachusetts. And one night the, the pipes froze oh, geez. on the third floor and flooded the entire thing from top to bottom. Oh God. Uh, so I wound up not only selling that house at a loss, but 
I was 50 years old the next time I bought any real estate. You were so traumatized. I was so traumatized. And that's when you bought the Ramirez Malibu, house. The, the Malibu, Malibu house. house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Cause I think that's a great story about the Malibu house. There is a good story there. Well, um, we, uh, you know, I'd grown the business sufficiently to live out in Malibu and I was working on a, we, we rented a house on, um, on Doom Drive for a bunch of years. I love that house. It had a great view. You're married at this point. You have married two kids. with kids, got two kids. And, uh, um, and I, I love the house. I want to put an offer in on the but house. How'd you know about the house? Uh, well, I lived, I lived in another house. Yeah. So I, um, uh, didn't you go I, to a party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, okay. I, yeah. So, Sorry. um, I, <laughs> that's a good point. So when we first lived in Malibu, we lived in a, we lived in a condo and it, and it was at the foot of, uh, a long driveway up a hill where there was a, where the rich people lived up a gated community. Yeah, yeah. And we lived in sort of the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 not the seedy part of town, but it was, it was where the help live, where the Malibu help live. Okay. So one night, a friend of mine um, who was in the vitamin business and I just started my vitamin company. He said, um, my, I know this guy, Rick, who lives up the hill. He's having a 50th birthday at a party. He, I get to bring somebody you want to come up. And I'm like, sure, I'll go up. So I'd never been, I'd never been through the gates up, up the hill behind me. And I went, we went to this party. It was great. And I go to this guy's house and it was like, Oh my God, this is unbelievable. This is the most, this is the coolest house I've ever seen. What would it be like to live up here? Like how cool would this be to live up here? Uh, but it was, you know, way out of my range and just wasn't even a, wasn't even something that I thought I would put on my to-do list. Um, and so about a year and a half, two years later, we're, we're living in a, we'd moved from the condos to a, a nice rental, um, house uh, on Doom Drive. And I tried to put an offer in to buy that house and they wouldn't, uh, they weren't really willing to sell it. And so I thought, so Karen and I started looking at houses around in, in Malibu. We also looked at a hundred, 150 houses. And then this house comes up, up, up the hill in um, Paradise View Estates, right next to Rick's house, two houses from Rick's house. And uh, I I remember walking in to the the entrance there and you remember this uh morgan there's a fountain in front and you look you can actually look through the glass of the front doors and out the sliding glass doors of the back of the house even before you get into the house you can see the view behind the hills behind everything i walked into that house and i go this is it this is the house what's it gonna take and um you know it was way out of my range not way out of my but it was out of my range yeah. And um, they always are. They always, yeah, <laughs> they, they always, always are. are. <laughs> and I, and I just, but I, you know, I, we pulled the trigger and said, let's do this. And you know, that, that was, uh, we started living there in May of 2003 and, and um, you know, until we moved to Miami in yep. 2017, it was, that was where my kids grew up. That was home. That was every day. I, I drove into that driveway. I thought, man, you know, how, how lucky are we to be living here? How fortunate are we to have, to have found this house and, you know, in this neighborhood that I had only dreamed about when I was yeah. uh, building, starting to build a business. It's very cool. Did you do an interest only mortgage at that point in time? Like the, original? no, 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 no. And it was crushing me. Cause I think the mortgage on it was like $18,000 a month or something like that. Crazy. It, was a, yeah. it was a, it was a huge mortgage. I, I didn't discover the interest only bit totally until good. years later, Got but it. the irony of the, the irony of interest only loans in many cases is, Banks will really only give them to you if you already if you have 
if you don't need them. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a protection um, method there. I have yeah. to joke that when you say, as I drive into the house, I'm just thinking as Mark drives into the house in his broke down fucking Maserati that caused more problems than any Mark. And I have this longstanding joke. I, I had a 2011 Ford escape for pretty much the whole time we were building primal kitchen. And Mark had this Maserati that was the biggest piece of shit car on the face of the earth. And in constant you, I remember you. I love that car. You loved it. And he called me and he's like, you won't believe it. And I'm like, it broke down again. He's like, Carrie and I had to drive home from Laguna beach that's with like, all with the windows down, with the windows down, with the, the automatic wouldn't roll windows up. 70 wouldn't miles roll hour, up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I'm yeah. like, well, at least you yeah. went in style. But you know what? Yeah, I went to Laguna Beach, and guess what? The windows worked in my 2011 <laughs> Ford Escape. <laughs> like this yeah. car, yeah, this yeah. that car, it broke down on like Sunset Boulevard. I remember you called me one time, and you had to get towed. You were with Kyle or something. Yeah, we were. That's when Kyle and I were looking at. Um, uh, that's, this is one of the times when Kyle and I were looking at real estate for primal kitchen restaurants Yeah, and, um, and it wouldn't start up again. And it was the, it was the alternator. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, alternator. <laughs> what the hell? You know, who cares? I go down to pep boys, get an alternator for 175 bucks. I'll throw that bitch in myself. Well, no, um, it, the alternator was like, like $1,700 and it was $2,000 to, to just for the labor to take all the car apart, to put the alternator where it needed to be. I so yeah, it. It, I mean, I, I, I did love the car and, uh, I, you know, as long for the first four years when it was, you know, again, every time I looked at the car, I thought, I love this car. It's a great, I'm, you know, I love the lines on it, but once the mechanics started to go, the mechanicals, it was, it was one thing after another. Yeah. I love the car for the amount of endless stories <laughs> provided quite honestly. Yeah. All right. So switching gears, Primal Kitchen restaurants, do you consider it a success or a failure? How do you frame that in your mind now? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a massive failure, um, you know, a learning experience. <laughs> um, but I thought at the time that I would, um, that that it was, the time was right for uh, a Primal restaurant, a, a restaurant that offered up healthy Primal style food. Um, I was approached by someone who, you know, represented themselves as a very knowledgeable person, uh, both in the field of franchising and then in the field of restaurant operations. Uh, he'd been a franchise consultant for 25 years and his family had been in the restaurant business. I came in as the brand guy and I was going to, you know, do all the things that I could do to, to, um, to promote the business through the brand. And, uh, you know, we, we started work in 2014, spent a year and a half, two years putting together the, the documents for a franchise operation. Um, there was a point at which I said, shouldn't we probably start a restaurant first and see, you know, and, and learn what we need to learn? He said, no, we don't need to do that. We can just go ahead and, and, and start these restaurants um, and sell franchises and we don't need to have an operating unit. So uh, we sold 18 franchises before we ever had an operating unit which made it one of the most successful franchises in the history of restaurant franchising. Um, at that point, I thought, well, you know, maybe we should have an operating unit. So I had uh, my son and daughter become my partners in a, in a restaurant in Culver City, Primal Kitchen. You know, we did all the work. It was, it was success in that my kids had an amazing two years of uh, finding, looking for real estate, finding an ideal piece, uh, overseeing construction, hiring uh, 30 employees, training them, managing them. It was great experience there. 
the issue wound up being that it's almost impossible to serve uh, quality food at the prices, the low prices that we were offering them. And this was the major failing of my partner. He just hadn't done the, he hadn't done the math. And he, rep, again, he, he sort of, I was relying him on him um, too much to be, to be there to oversee the nuts and bolts of the operation, the restaurant. And, and, and so what happened was we, we had a lot of business. We had business. We had to, people were coming into the restaurant, but we were losing money on every, on every meal. So um, there's no way that you can make that up in volume. And particularly for us in California, where it's just, it's, it's an onerous environment to even have a restaurant in California. The, you know, the health departments are overseeing way too much. The, the California requirements for energy, the, you know, what they call title 24. I mean, I, I had to pay a hundred thousand dollars for a complicated light switch that would turn lights on and off based on the ambient light. Well, at 1030 in the morning, when the sun came up to here, the lights would, you know, that lights that were on beforehand would go off, except they'd go on again when it got, and, and they'd flicker on and off and you couldn't bypass the panel that the regulations in California are, are just horrible. And labor costs are high in California, rents high in California and food costs are high. So we just, we couldn't make it, we couldn't make it work there. We had another uh, franchisee who had similar problems in in South Bend. And so at some point, even though people invariably came up to me and would say, oh, my God, Mark, thank you so much. This is amazing. We love your place. The food's great. We love the ambiance. Everything about this is what we would hope we would find in a restaurant. I had to pull the plug because we were losing $40,000 a month. Or as I like to say, we were losing one BMW a month. Uh, in um, in business losses, and that's after having spent, you know, a lot of money building the restaurant out. So these are there are times when you go. Uh, the analysis then would have been okay if we really, really put the pen to the paper and we try to figure out where we can cut corners and where we can scrimp and save and make adjustments to the menu. Maybe in six months we'll get to break even. Well, I've never been in a business to break even. You know, I'm in a business to make money. So with that recognition, I had to go literally go back to all my franchisees and pay them back all, all their franchise fees. It's, it, was, it was a massive, a massive undertaking that, that would have <laughs> taken me out uh, of commission had, had it not been for the success, the, the simultaneous success of Primal Kitchen Foods. Do you think that's the most stressed you've ever been in your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, that was nothing even comes close. Nothing comes close. That was every single night for two years, just, yeah. you know, not being able to sleep and, and, uh, you know, basically having, having nightmares when I did sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh yeah. I mean, Adam and I had a restaurant around the same time. Remember I told you, <laughs> that's right. do you remember this? Cause this is like yes, so weird, but I remember telling you, you know, Mark, this is because we had taken over a fully functioning restaurant that was, you know, already had been in business for 18 years. So it was very different than your venture. And it was still so incredibly stressful for me. Like I remember, and I wasn't even operating. I was running Primal Kitchen and just 
the dynamics of it all were so much, but I remember seeing you owning a restaurant. I I was like, you have a choice. Do you want to be like cold cocked in the face, like once a quarter, or do you want someone to follow you around 24 hours a day, tapping you on the shoulder, the water pipe broke, the the so-and-so called in sick, this doesn't work, this, we can't get this food, we're out of lettuce, (laughs) like something, you know, 86 this, I mean, it was just like, yeah, I think that's what it's like to run a restaurant, is someone Some of my best friends, some of my best friends are in the restaurant business and I love them for it, but you are born to it or you're not. Yeah. And I was not born to it. And my friends who are born to it, they know what they're getting into and they live it and they love yeah. it. And I was at lunch today at, at you know, at uh, Santorini, this place we go to every Monday for lunch. And it's a it's a well-respected restaurant. And the owner, Giorgio, he's there, you know, he's he's glad handing everybody and 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 managing. And, you know, he doesn't have to, but he has to, if you know what yeah. I mean. He's like, that's. That's the difference is that you have to be there and you have to, and of course you have to have the, the metrics have to work, the rent. I mean, there's three major factors, the rent, the labor, and, and the cost of food. And if any one of those is out, you're screwed. If all three of them are out, you are, you're, you're really hosed. Yeah. 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 Did you, was there anything that like helped you get through that time? Like stress wise, any, I mean. Oh, so it's so funny. Did I tell you that? I mean, I, I might've told you this. So Carrie, my wife was doing, um, she was doing, she's always been involved in sort of, spiritual psychology, um, self-improvement, betterment kind of things. And she had just um, gotten very involved with with, uh, an organization called the Three Ps, the Three Principles up in in Washington State, in LaConnor. And, you know, and basically the premise is, you know, there's no real problem. So the only only cause of your stress is your thoughts about the issue. It's not the issue itself. It's your thoughts about the issue that are causing you discomfort. And that makes a lot of sense, except to embody that is almost impossible, right? Yeah, I get it. I get my thoughts about losing all this money, you know, or is what making me sick, but I'm still losing the money. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm, I can't like, how do I get rid of the thoughts? So at night, one of the things she said was um, when you wake up and you can't sleep uh, and your mind is racing with all of the shit that you've got to handle the next day. Just remind yourself it's two o'clock in the morning. There is absolutely nothing you can do about it right now. There is no decision you will make now that you can't make when you wake up. So turn your head sideways on the pillow and let that thought drain out your ear into the pillow. So that was that was this little device I that I that. used. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We all need that. I mean, yeah. even yeah. little things, especially right now, I feel like they're coming up and I've definitely had my 3 a.m. nights. It's hard to turn that off. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, I remember talking, do you, this is like really going to date this conversation here, but we, I'm talking like 2014, we had lunch at Marmalade Cafe. So if that tells you how long ago it was, this was like before Coogies, which was yeah. <laughs> before Soho House. So yeah, this right, is a right. while ago. And I remember talking to you about like, you know, in the end of the day, you said this to me and you can say it better, but we were talking about like, if it all went away, like what would your day look like it, if all this success went away and it, like in the case of the restaurant, right? Like there was a very real like threat to your, you know, livelihood yeah, and your yeah. assets, like yeah. everything, like everything you owned, I'm sure was up for collateral. And, you know, that was probably what was driving a lot of the anxiety. But do you remember having this conversation? Do you know where I'm going this? Well, this? I don't remember that conversation, but I, I can pretty much predict what I would have said. 
Um, and that is, um, you know, if, if all of the trappings went away, how would my life be different? And the answer is I'd, I'd still wake up every morning at the same time. I'd still have the same cup of coffee. I'd still do the crossword puzzle. I'd still go to the gym and work out and see my friends who, who don't care how much money I have or don't have. Um, you know, I'd still um, play ultimate Frisbee with the guys on the weekend. Uh, I'd still love my kids just as much, probably more. Uh, I, I don't know if I could love, love them more, but um, you know, I would um, still love my wife as much. Um, any hike that I take, I will appre- I would appreciate just as much, regardless of how much money I have. And those are what I fill my days with. I fill my days with that that sort of stuff. So as long as I have a roof over my head, as long as I have some clothes to wear as long as I have some food to eat, um, you know, the, the other stuff there, it's kind of just trappings. I enjoy it, but if it got, you know, taken away from me somehow, my day would not look much different from what it is right now. Yeah. That was exactly the exact thing we talked about. That always stuck with me. Okay. A few last ones on our entrepreneurship podcast. And then I'm clearly sitting over here in the dark, hence the, uh, brown lighting so we can wrap it up but all right um with every failure you had what do you think kept you like coming back for more like what kept you hopeful and optimistic well this is what i tell young people now i was like i'm like <clears throat> you know you it only takes one success in a lifetime to make everything else you ever did worth it so you can fail a lot of times and the failure only takes you back to zero. Um, and I've been at zero a number of times. So, you, you know, it's not like it beats you up any, any more than you beat yourself up. Um, but, but all it takes is one reasonably good success to make everything you ever did worthwhile. And, you know, as Wayne Gretzky famously said, you, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Uh, and, you know, as Thomas Edison said, you know, I didn't fail 10,000 times before I found uh, the, you know, tungsten coated cotton filament for the light bulb. I just discovered 10,000 ways not to do it. So a lot of this is your uh, perspective. Um, I think my son, Kyle, would say that the two years uh, of the restaurant business and the failure were some of the best successes in his own personal life he ever had. He he found his um, his footing and his grounding as a, as an entrepreneur, as a manager. You know, he, he hired and interviewed. You know, he he interviewed and hired and trained and managed thirty people at the age of 22, 23. and he felt good about it, and and they liked him. And you know, the the failure of the restaurant was not not his fault. So he and he knows that he gets that. Um, so he doesn't look at that as. Uh, you know, that was a waste of time or that, I, you know, I wish I, you know, uh, I wish I could have a do-over on that. I think what he thinks to himself is, which I would hope anyone would, was that was a great learning experience. Now I'm going to take what I learned there and apply it to the next endeavor um, because I'm still, you know, I didn't get killed. I didn't get hurt. I didn't get beat up. I'm still who I am. And now I've had this great life experience where I can apply these lessons um, I'm, I'm full of sort of these cliches and adages tonight, but my, um, you know, um, my mentor, if you will, Art Devaney, 
has famously said, there is no failure, only feedback. And I think that's a great way to look at any of these things. So in, in the failures, you can find the opportunity. Um, I read there was a Wall Street Journal article today about the um, uh, a company that started out in, I think it's Twitch, uh, doing gaming and stuff like that. Maybe it was not Twitch. I forget which one it was. But in the company was worth, you know, 24 or $100 million. And then um, the next thing you know, that somebody came to them and said, we, you know, we like your internal communication app that you're using. Uh, it's better than email. What do you guys call it? Well, we call it Slack and it's just a little internal thing. And now, so, so they, so this, this little offset device that somebody within the company just invented. So the company would have a more effective way of communication. Slack is now worth $44 billion. So crazy. the original company, you could argue that it failed, but then what came out of that was, you know, a massive success. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Last one. What, if you could go back and like talk to your younger self, what advice would you give? Um, I, I think I've changed that over the years. Um, you know, and, and now I see this shit on Instagram all the time. So I feel like now it's become a platitude, um, you know, like, like it's going to be okay. Like, that's what I would have told myself. If you'd asked me that five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, don't worry, pay the bills, enjoy, live your life. It's going to be okay. Meaning um, if you decide that you're going to grind it out and, you know, um, hustle and, and give up your family life and give up your, um, your personal life and your friends, because you're so involved in this project that's going to, that you think is going to change the world. And you're so involved that you do that to the detriment of having an actual life then you got to take a step back and go, you know, why am I doing this? Well, I'm, I'm doing this so I can have a better, so I can have a better life and feed my family and enjoy my kids. But the number of times I've seen entrepreneurs brag about their 90 hour weeks or their 120 hour weeks and no time, you know, like they're in the office at 6am and they don't come home until 930 and they never see their kids and they, you know, they're working weekends. And I'm like, that's what kind of life is that? And what is the point to that? Because the point at the end of the day is to, is to enjoy every single moment of every day that you possibly can, which includes spending time with your kids and, and, and with your family or your friends or doing, you know, hobbies and activities. Um, and, and it becomes obsessive to some people. And then, you know, you hear the stories about, well, they, now they're 45 or 55 and they're divorced and they're, their kids hate them. <laughs> yeah, they have all this money, but but you know, and and they're and they're not healthy because they they also avoided, um, you know, staying in shape and going to the gym and things like that. And so they have all this money and and nothing to do with it. So, I would tell people just live your life. Don't go into debt. Don't go heavily into debt. But live your life. Enjoy as much as you can. And if you find what you like doing or you're good at doing, it'll pay off. And, and don't don't you know force it to pay off. Um, by grinding it out at the expense of everything else, but just let it, let it happen and it'll happen organically. I guarantee it'll happen organically to me. You know, it was, it was, I was 61 when we started primal kitchen. Right. So, yeah. you know, uh, and, and I had had a great life up until then and, and, and I continued to, but you know, I, I went to every one of my kids' soccer games. I coached little league. 
I was a referee, a soccer referee. Um, I was down teaching them how to boogie board, how to snowboard. I mean, I, I spent time with my kids. And even as I was building my businesses, and to this day, that's really what they remember about growing up was the time I spent with them. Not the, not the stuff I, that they got for their birthday or not the, you know, whatever, the, the, the vacation stuff that, that everybody did. But it was literally the little moments of time together. And I think that's, that's huge. Yeah. I love that. I agree. I'm doing, I do this thing every night when I'm putting record about, I ask him what he's thankful for. Cause it really like helps me with my own gratitude practice. Yep. And he always, even if it's like, you know, we go get ice cream that day, which is like, he's three. This is like, all he wants to do is like eat ice cream and you know, all these other things, but it would, no matter what, it's always like, my, I'm thankful for you, like wrestling on the floor with me, or I'm thankful for you taking me horseback riding. It's always like a thing we do together, even yeah. at three, yeah. even on days when he gets a new present or a special treat, it's never anything you give him. It's always like something we did together. So it's like been that's very eye opening for me, just that yep. that's so recognizable, even at such a young age. I think yep. that's great advice. Well, cool. awesome, Mark. This was great. Thanks so much. I love yeah, this pleasure. and look forward to doing more of these. We will. All right. All right. See you more. Chat later. Bye.